0: Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just launch in to talk to you about one of my favorite famous Christian dead guys by the name of J.C. Ryle. Uh, how many of you have heard of J.C. Ryle? Probably everybody has heard of J.C. Ryle. If I asked you that question in 1940, and we were in some sort of church, even in England, uh, no hands would go up. Uh, J.C. Ryle was a big deal in his lifetime, and as soon as he died, because of the times, because of great social change, and especially because of an increasing liberalism in the Church of England, he was intentionally and immediately forgotten for 50 years. Uh, When Spurgeon died, for example... Uh, When Spurgeon died in 1892, a contemporary of J.C. Ryle, he's the Baptist version, the independent church version, the year that he died, 18 biographies were written about Spurgeon. In 1892, just that year, 18 biographies. Since the time of J.C. Ryle, maybe half that number have come out, and and most have just been in recent years, uh, as there's been kind of an increase not only of of interest in Ryle, but uh, scholastic work around Ryle. And so for a century nearly, there was only a handful of biographies about J.C. Ryle. And this is remarkable because he was as prolific as Spurgeon. In his preaching ministry, in his national profile, he wrote hundreds of tracts and pamphlets he published a dozen books that were widely distributed, printed, uh, some of them 10 editions just in his lifetime. He was a very well-known Christian. And I think what you see in Ryle in the, the, the forgetfulness of, of his faithfulness is an interesting lesson to see how God can use uh, the testimony of a man once forgotten And because of his commitment to the truth, because of the clarity of his gospel witness, God can resurrect that reality, and he really has done that in the ministry of J.C. Ryle. He is far more red now than he was even in his own lifetime. And even that half century of neglect uh, did not slow down the interest that now uh, happens in in the ministry of J.C. Ryle. I could talk about a lot of things when it comes to Bishop Ryle, the first bishop of Liverpool. Uh, I, I could get deep into his, his churchmanship, but we would all go to sleep trying to dissect the 39 articles and the intricacies of Anglicanism. Uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not for us here at Grace Church, so we're, we're going to not get deep into that. Um, I could talk, and I do talk at the seminary, just about his preaching. He's a phenomenal preacher and a great teacher of preachers. His book, Simplicity in Preaching, is one that that if I had to get rid of all other preaching books in my library, and and I think five preaching books come out a month people are trying to sell and teach guys how to preach, I would just keep Simplicity in Preaching. It would be helpful for you in whatever context you teach. All Christians are teachers, uh, at least of the gospel, right? That's what the commission says we should do, go and teach them to obey Jesus. So if you'd like to work on your ability as a teacher, I, w- I would recommend to you reading J.C. Ryle's Simplicity in Preaching. Uh, so I could talk about that. I could talk about um, his, his powerful work as an evangelist, some of his social reform efforts. Uh, I could talk about his stately beard, and I, I think I will, but... <laughs> There's something in in Ryle that I pick up on, and it's not just me. I think most students of J.C. Ryle find so much example in his sturdy fidelity. I mean, he is a man committed to the truth, and nothing could move him from his unshakable commitments and convictions. Ryle was someone who, was so famously committed to the Bible and to the gospel that as the church became increasingly liberal in his days, and especially at the end of his ministry, he was seen as an antiquated dinosaur, and it didn't bother him at all. So Ryle's truthfulness is well-documented, and I want to look at some of that today. But there's another aspect that goes alongside of Ryle's commitment to the truth and that's Ryle's well-known graciousness, his compassion, his kindness, his tenderness. Uh, Ryle's successor uh, in Liverpool called him famously a man of granite with the heart of a little child. And the reason I began reading to you from John 1, Verse 14, when Jesus is the one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, and there's several other passages I could have chosen to highlight that conjunction of truthfulness and graciousness. Uh, You could use Ephesians' uh, instruction to speak the truth in love. Uh, You could use other instances of Jesus' life where he boldly stands as the only way of salvation, but also with a warm heart towards sinners, invites them to come. Matthew 11, for example. So uh, there's lots of places we could go, and I think it's a very biblical reality that we all need to be firmly committed to the truth and warm hearted towards other people, be they fellow church members or a pagan society or increasingly. Uh, liberal Christians that might surround us, J.C. Ryle was always willing to engage with them, to be charitable towards them, but never bending on the truth of his convictions. And for that, I find him to be a great example to all of us, especially in an increasingly sinful age. So I'm going to try to pull that out in kind of three areas of of his life. Uh, and I'm not going to be exhaustive. Um, I haven't spent enough time in England to do that uh, because he was, a, he was an Englishman. And I'm not an Anglican because uh, I think I'd get fired if I was. Um, but I, I do want to you know, kind of survey uh, the, the life of this man from altitude and, and draw you into kind of three areas where I think you can see the conjunction of grace and truth or as I'm calling it with Ryle, Truth and Tenderness, or as, as his predecessor said, uh, The Man of Granite with the Heart of a Child, or as a recent biographer, uh, Roger Bennett, a Southern Baptist scholar, uh, did a nice biography on Ryle, quite, quite thick and impressive, and he, he titled that The Tender Lion. So that's what I see in Ryle, and that's what I like to bring out in these three areas. First, his conversion... And then I'd look to, like to look at some of his crises, uh, some of his trials and difficulties, and then finally a glimpse at his churchmanship and, and really the impact of his ministry. So let's start by talking about his early life leading up to his conversion. Ryle was uh, raised in an environment maybe familiar to you if you've ever tasted a silver spoon. I don't know if that's you. It's not me, I'm from Albuquerque. <laughs> so there are those who are from nicer neighborhoods. And J.C. Ryle is one of those men. Uh, dating back to his grandfather, uh, J.C. Ryle was part of the classist society in England. Uh, J.C. Ryle's lifespan and ministry span basically mirrored exactly the reign of Queen Victoria. So he was an exemplary Victorian gentleman. His grandfather before him, his father before him were were members of high society. They were involved in the silk trade in in England, in central England, and it was it was a significant and, and vast fortune that his grandfather would pass on to his father. Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood, adjusting for inflation, which is what we're all doing these days, uh, we're talking about like $100 million, a vast fortune. They had a country estate, uh, multiple properties around England. Uh, they had a dozen servants, butlers, maids. I mean, we're talking Downton Abbey kind of a, kind of a lifestyle, whatever that is. So... So J.C. Ryle grew up with with great fortune. His grandfather was an associate with some of the early kind of uh, forerunners of Methodism. And John Wesley actually came through the region that the Ryle's lived, and they were hospitable to John Wesley. John Wesley, uh, theologically you know him as an Arminian, but you should know him evangelistically as a great preacher of the gospel. And it was in that gospel preaching, especially to Blue Collar, uh, but was financed by the more wealthy parts of society that uh, John Ryle, the grandfather, was um, involved in gospel ministry uh, as like a financier. So he would pay for the construction of churches. He would fund missions work. And when he handed that fortune over to his son, J.C. Ryle's father, also named John Ryle, uh, the son was less involved and less interested in vital Christian religion. The family were church going, they were respectable, uh, they were uh, affluent and kept their noses clean but they did not have any interest in zealousness in religion. To the Ryle family, uh, church was a thing best left for Sunday, and the spiritual environment of the home would be considered non-existent. And it's here, I think, that we can be ministered to a little bit by history, and remind ourselves, especially those of us trying to raise kids in a, uh, a fallen world, and fallen children in a fallen world uh, by fallen parents, uh, we, we could be reminded of the need for not just church attendance and the outward parts of religion, uh, the, the, the trappings of it, because that's all that young J.C. Ryle had. And it did nothing to him except harden his heart. Uh, He said about his childhood, J.C. Ryle said, We had few cares, no sickness, no death, no anxieties, and wanted for nothing, destitute of any real religion. It wasn't that he hadn't been exposed to the wear of, of, of biblicism, um, but he would go on to describe the, the spiritual environment of his home as a kid with these words. A wit of what may be called a real spiritual religion. We sometimes heard rumors when we were children of certain strange clergymen who were called evangelical. But we never came across any of them. They were sedulously, I had to look it up, it means zealously. It's from the Latin, seduous. They were zealously brought up to regard them as well-meaning, extravagant, fanatical enthusiasts who carried things a great deal too far in religion. And so it was their prejudice against Methodists, basically, uh, those who were evangelical, those who believed that conversion was necessary, that hell was real, that the gospel needed to be preached, that individual conversion was a necessity, not only for every member of society, but for every single person uh, born into a home. And so it's that kind of overzealous evangelical Christianity that made the Riles nervous in their pomp and uh, basically trouble-free existence. And that sort of irreligious religiosity fit in well with the churches in their day. Ryle, thinking back on his uh, experience going to church as a kid, said there were only two churches in Macclesfield. You might have slept comfortably in those churches, in the sermons of their ministers, as you might in your own armchairs with nothing to wake you up. And so if you think about Anglicanism today, the robes and the rituals and the smoke and the, the stuff, uh, all the kind of what, what you would think of as, as being similar to you know Roman Catholic liturgy or, or something like that, that's all they had then in the churches. It was a spiritually desolate kind of environment. Ritual was maximized. Uh, the Lord's Supper was it was kind of a show, and that's the kind of Christianity that that uh, young J.C. Ryle grew up with. I think you could call it a, a nominal Christianity, a nominal Christianity. And this would consider would continue all the way through his young adult uh, years and into college. He was uh, educated in private schools. He was. Uh, tutored in Greek and Latin. He was uh, very uh, well-educated, very well-taught. Uh, he would end up going for kind of their version of high school to a, a really well-known school called Eton, uh, Eton College. Uh, you, you, you know it because uh, both Prince Harry and Prince William went to Eton and like 16 prime ministers and Bear Grills. So it's a well-known school. Uh, for the the hoity-toity that was started in like 1400, I think it taught for 400 years only in Latin. I mean, this is this is like the boys' school to this day, Eton College. Uh, anyway, so he went to Eton, and it was in those co- those those kind of high school years where he continued to have no spiritual life whatsoever. And Eton at the time was another spiritually desolate place. Uh, It had a famous headmaster named John Keats, who there was a a Sports Illustrated article from the 60s, 1960s, that uh, did kind of a remembrance of this old guy because he was the most brutal disciplinarian ever. Uh, There was rebellions in schools back then, like uh, uprisings with students, and he flogged with oak birch branches, whatever they're called, uh, 80 students in one night to quell the rebellion. I mean, this was a bad hombre. So uh, J.C. Rao got got whipped twice in his days in school, once for being late after a sports practice. He was really into athletics, and once for firing a pistol. I just think it's cool. Uh, (laughs) So he got whipped for, for that by this headmaster. But at Eton he also was kind of taken under the wing of a tutor who invested in his intellectual life significantly. And he gives so much credit to his learning to that tutor who spent time with him. And it was there that, that his understanding of culture, of, uh, of uh, classical education, his, his ability with the languages... And because it was a really pretty irreligious or just sort of state-sponsored religion, there was no real vital Christianity, no powerful sermons, no gospel preaching. Uh, he didn't know any evangelicals. Uh, but there was a scholarship, which he didn't need the money, but he, it was sort of a, uh, just a, a, another way to kind of elevate yourself among the, the schoolboys there. A, a scholarship was started that was... Uh, kind of to demonstrate nature, the nature of Christian doctrine, to study the 39 articles of the Church of England, which are are good, like a good confessional statement. Um, And so he learned some theology in just a rote way, memorized some stuff, uh, and and took this exam and won the scholarship. And that was sort of his first time where he, he actually had to internalize Something that that was true and something that was you know doctrinally substantive, and this was this was a guy who just grew up having a great time but by this point in his life at Eton, he had become the captain of the cricket squad, which is like baseball for four weeks or something, and uh, I went to to the u k once and there was an an advertisement or they call it an advertisement. Uh, painted above a cricket pitch that said, it was a, a, a paint company, and they painted this big wall above the cricket field. These games are notorious for going on literally for days. And it said, what? We like watching paint dry. <laughs> so that's, that's cricket. A we'll little taste of it for you. But he was, he was great at cricket. And he was on the rowing team, and he grew with this incredible stature. He actually—I wrote this part down. He—he he actually measured himself when he was 18, which just shows he was a jock. Just such a jock thing to do. And when he was 18, he was six foot one and seven eighths. He would grow to be six three. He was a gigantic guy. Uh, he had a 31 inch waist. So basically, my exact parameters. And <laughs> 31. 31, 41. So he was, his, his arm was uh, two foot, uh, three inches. His, his uh, wingspan was six and two and a half inches. Uh, his, the span of his hand was nine and a half inches. He was a, a horse of a man. He was a great big guy, Bishop Ryle. And so uh, his nickname in school was Magnus. That's Latin for. Big dog. So he's just—he was Magnus. He was a jock. He he loved sports. Uh, when he described his <laughs> when he described his kind of days off uh, from school on school holidays, he would spend his time uh, wrestling with his two gigantic mastiff dogs. There's this cool kind of theme when you study Ryle. He was he was a dog guy, not a cat guy, because he was a guy and. <laughs> So he loved his dogs. And he had these two massive, uh, they were called lime mastiffs. I think that's the old name for like an English bull mastiff, these big, huge dogs in the country estate, and he loved his dogs. One of his dogs from childhood, he kept its collar with the tag after the dog died and kept it his whole life like in his personal belongings. So he loved his dogs. He played with his dogs. He would uh, go fishing, boating, do carpentry, shooting, which got him in trouble once, uh, occasionally riding horses, cutting down trees, or some other violent exercises. So this was a, a big, energetic, strong guy. And he looked around his life at at Eton, and then uh, loved his time there. Ended up going to Christ College in Oxford. This is also a very premier. Uh, school, kind of the highest education. His dad at this point had become a member of parliament and the aspirations that he had for his son, that his son would excel not only in sports but in education and then use the vast fortune of the family to become a politician, uh, certainly a member of parliament, if not someday prime minister. That was sort of where everybody saw J.C. Ryle heading and it seemed inevitable. He had the wealth for it, Uh, unlike politics now, which pay, like in our country, politicians get paid and then they cheat and steal to get rich. Uh, Then, to be a politician, sorry, that might have been too heavy-handed, but um, (laughs) the politicians then financed their life separately from from politics, and it's like mind-blowing to consider such a thing. So... Uh, so he needed that wealth to, to excel in politics, and so he went to Oxford and found Oxford to be morally repugnant. And this is, this is from a... He's not converted. He's just a, a morally upright guy. He said at Oxford, nothing disgusted me so much as the miserable idolatry of money and also of aristocratic connection. I, I never saw such an amount of of flattery, of fawning upon wealth and title, as I saw among the undergraduates at Oxford. Now, that's from uh, his autobiography. All these quotes are coming from this book, by the way. This is uh, his autobiography. He wrote it at the end of his life. It just covers his, his earliest years, kind of his childhood growing up through college years and his beginning of the ministry. Uh, I would have loved if he would have kept going, but he wrote this not for the public. He wrote this for his kids. And so he wanted his kids to kind of know what, what his life was like in the early years. And so this is a fascinating read, though. If you want to read Ryle in his own words, it's, his, it's called The Early Years. And it's, this one's been edited by a Ryle scholar named Andrew Atherstone. And he understands Ryle well. He's, he's Anglican. So um, that's where all these quotes are coming from, just so you know. Back to the quotes. So... He was disgusted by the immorality uh, that surrounded his Oxford years, um, saying, "I never saw such an amount of toadying, flattering, fawning upon wealth and title. There was also a coldness and a distance, a want of sociability and sympathy amongst undergraduates, which to a boy fresh from Eton was extremely offensive." Uh, the class system was, was kind of huge. He was, uh, got into playing cards and dancing, but he didn't get into, uh, and those were considered pretty significant sins back then, he didn't get into drunkenness or, or some of the other kind of darker sins uh, that marked the culture of those days. So he, he kept himself relatively clean of some things, but he just didn't have a spiritual bone in his body. Uh, he recalled in those years, my father's house was respectable and well-conducted. But there really was not a bit of religion in it. We had no family prayers at all, except on Sunday nights, and that only occasionally. Conversation on Sunday went much as it did on a weekday. Letters were read and written, and newspapers read just as the same as on weekdays. The plain truth is that for the first 16 or 17 years of my life, there was no ministry of the gospel at the churches we attended. The clergymen were wretched, high, and dry sticks of the old school, and their preaching was not calculated to do good to anybody. We had no real religious friends or relatives, and no real Christian ever visited our house. The plain truth is that neither in my own family, the Hertz or the Arkwrights, it's his relations with whom I was most mixed when I was young, can I remember any of what may be called real spirit, We sometimes heard rumors when we were children of certain strange clergymen who were called evangelical. I read you a piece of this one earlier. But we never came across any of them. They were, we were to regard them as well-meaning, extravagant, fanatical enthusiasts who carried things a great deal far into religion. Now the quote continues. To sum it all up, I wish my children to remember that for about the first 18 years of my life, neither at home nor at school nor college nor among my relatives or friends had I anything to do good to my soul or to teach me anything about Jesus Christ. I mean, that's remarkable, and I don't think it's, it's a different experience than some Christian families have today. I think you can raise your kids, even in a good church like this one, completely dependent on tradition, completely dependent on ritual without real vital Christianity in the home. I think you can even have the marks of what looks to be a soul, vital, powerful you know Christianity in you know, forced Bible reading and prayers and family worship. But if it's disconnected from the spiritual reality of a new heart, it's just like Ryle's home religion. And so I just find this whole part of his life to be convicting and a reminder to me as a dad to make sure that I'm not dependent on things, whether those things be church things or or educational things, in my kids' lives uh, more than I'm dependent on the Spirit of God to work, to live an authentic, vital, and real Christian life uh, before my family. So that's just a reminder that I get from this kind of section uh, because there was you know, some truth around Ryle, but the operation of grace was not happening yet. So like, the Lord had preserved him from some bad stuff that surrounded him quite a bit. Uh, special mercy, he said, that I had no taste for low company or for the coarse vices and habits into which many young men run. For these things, I had no natural inclination. My taste revolted against them, though I really do not think I had a bit of principle to keep me right. So it's at this point that I think you start to see a change in in Ryle. And Bennett Rogers sees this happen his conversion happened kind of in five steps up a ladder. Just these rungs of, of experience in his life that took place. And I think it's a pretty good summary, so I'll, I'll borrow from him. What led to this, as he gets his honors degree from Oxford, what, what led to this moment where the Holy Spirit would convert J.C. Ryle to turn him you know, from this irreligious kid destined for parliament to one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century, to one that Charles Spurgeon would commend as one of the greatest preachers he'd ever known. Uh, Lloyd-Jones said about Ryle, one of the most encouraging and hopeful signs I have observed in evangelical circles has been a renewed and increasing interest in the writings of J.C. Ryle. Uh, How did this happen? And this is how it happened in five rungs. First, he was rebuked by a friend. He was on a hunting trip with Algernon Coote. What an English name that is. (laughs) And he was out hunting with a group of friends. Something happened. J.C. Ryle cussed, dropped a cuss. And Algernon Coote rebuked him sharply. And it stuck with him. I mean, he wrote about it 50 years later as this moment of conviction first entered his heart and he had this awareness that his, his mouth was reflective of something inside his heart. And he called it later, was the, one of the first things that I can remember that made a kind of religious impression upon my soul. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. But that, that's how God so often works. The law brings conviction. And this awareness of sin was activated in Ryle second rung on the ladder that led to his conversion was uh, some changes in local churches in his hometown of Macclesfield. Uh, St. George's is, is one of the churches. I think it's an office building now. But uh, then it was a church that got reopened for services uh, because there was a dispute and a division in the church, kind of uh, a liberal and a conservative thing, and it ended up, they brought in someone who was going to start to preach the gospel for real. And and so now this church, which was part of the diocese of churches in his hometown, uh, brought in not one, but a second evangelical minister. And according to Ryle, he said the gospel was really preached by these men. And they introduced a, quote, new kind of religion into the Church of England in that part of Cheshire, He attended this church with his family when he was home on holidays, and it began to get him thinking because instead of the ritualism and prayer book readings that he'd known his whole life, these guys could actually preach. They were actually preaching with conviction. They believed the Bible, and it was such a stark difference that it was notable to this young college student. So that's the the, the second rung. Third rung was a cousin of his, one of the Arkwrights named Harry. Harry Arkwright gets saved. I mean, just converted and has a radical change in his life. And Ryle was struck by what he saw as a great change in his cousin. And he also noticed that his cousin took up all these different opinions about things. Like it affected his thought, his worldview, everything. And then, next thing you know, Ryle's sister, Susan Falls, and by Falls, I mean she's converted and so Ryle's going like what's with these people like they're changing and they're 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 there's something happening with them and they're getting super religious and he'd always said like you know we don't get zealous we we you know we, we keep our noses up and the, so the spoon can go in the silver one you know i mean it's just this is too much and so People are being converted. And so when he goes home again on, on holidays, these two people, his cousin and his sister, are like having spiritually minded conversations about the Bible and about the gospel and about God's work in their lives and they're prayerful and they read their Bibles and Ryle is going, what is going on around here? So that was rung number three. The fourth rung in this ladder that led to this Massive change occurring not just around Ryle, but in Ryle, was he got really, really sick in 1837. He was preparing for his final exams, was working hard, probably not sleeping much, and just grinding, getting ready for for his finals, and he was brought low for weeks he called it a very curious crisis because the dude was like a rock. You know, he didn't get sick. But this just laid him low and he was quiet and bedridden for a long time. And while he was quiet and bedridden and not feeling his best, he started to read his Bible and pray. The reading of the Bible and prayer changed something in the way he approached his exams. Usually, Ryle was more of a stress case. But after this kind of prolonged sickness and this time in Scripture and prayer, he said he went through his exams very coolly and quietly. And I think what's happening there is is this increasing awareness of spiritual things is just starting to take precedence over the other things in his life. And so... We get to rung number five, and this is where it all goes down. One Sunday morning, around this same time, kind of around his final examinations, he goes to Carfax Church. Carfax Church, named after the the thing where they check your car if it's been in accidents, you know. Carfax Church, England's weird. Uh, formerly known as St. Martin's, that's better. And he was feeling depressed, and he was feeling discouraged. And the reader of the lesson, which is what they had in in that church, got up to read Ephesians 2.8, a verse Ryle heard his whole life, I'm sure, was part of the prayer book, part of the rituals. But this reader gets up and read it, like really read it. And Ryle remembers that he read it with with pauses. And so Ryle's sitting there feeling low and cast down, aware of his sin, um, acutely aware of, of spiritual changes happening around him, aware of his own mortality, laid low by sickness, having read the Bible and praying. And then this guy gets up with the lectionary, but he reads it. He really reads it. He says, by grace, are ye saved through faith? And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Bennett says it this way, this unusual and emphatic reading of Ephesians 2.8 eight made a tremendous impact on him and it led to his evangelical conversion. So by the end of 1738, somewhere around Christmas time, J.C. Rao wasn't big on like putting an exact date on his conversion. He realized that he was now a Christian. He describes it this way. Nothing I remember to this day appeared to me so clear and distinct as my own sinfulness, Christ's preciousness, the value of the Bible, the absolute necessity of coming out from the world, the need of being born again, and the enormous folly of the whole doctrine of baptismal regeneration. All these things seem to flash upon me like a sunbeam in the winter of 1837 and have stuck in my mind from that time down to this. People may account for such a change as they like. My own belief is that no rational explanation can be given of it, but that of the Bible. It was what the Bible calls conversion and regeneration, before that time, I was dead in sins and on the high road to hell, and from that time, I became alive and had a hope of heaven, and nothing to my mind can account for it but the free, sovereign grace of God. It was the greatest event and change in my life and has had an influence over the whole course of my subsequent character And history. And he graduated Oxford, saved. And so that's part one, is his conversion. And there is no experience of truth. You can't be a warrior for truth like J.C. Ryle was, unless you've experienced God's grace. And that's what, uh, and I think this you probably heard this story, it's a famous story, I just love it in his own words, but to hear his conviction formed from an irreligious kind of upbringing, where he did not see the glory and preciousness of Jesus, to this sudden change, you know, that, that had all kinds of kind of dominoes that came together to to fall down, to, to bring this moment about in his life. But to see the necessity of, of conversion is something we all have to hold on to for the sake of our own testimonies. And if Ryle was here, he, he preached a sermon. Um, I, think I, I think I put this on a thing. There to be seen among people every here and there, unmistakable cases of a complete turning round of heart, character, tastes, and life. Cases which deserve no other name than that of conversion. I can say that when a man turns right round from sin to God, from worldliness to holiness, from self-righteousness to self-distrust, from carelessness about religion to deep repentance, from unbelief to faith, from indifference to Christ to strong love to Christ, from neglect of prayer in the Bible to the diligent use of all means of grace, I say boldly that such a man is a converted man. When a man's heart is turned upside down in the way I've described, so that he loves what he once hated and hates what he once loved, I say boldly that is a case. Of conversion. To deny it is mere obstinacy and affectation. Such a change can be described in no other way. By far the most suitable name that can be given to it is the scriptural name, conversion. It's from one of his tracts, which was like a sermon written down in a little pamphlet um, called Conversion. He gives, I think, six reasons that conversion is necessary. Uh, fundamental, fruitful, happy is one of the headings. It's an awesome message. You can find it for free on the internet. <laughs> so in his conversion, you find the, the confluence of grace and truth because that's what, that's what conversion is. It's not just a realization of the truth about Jesus' claims, his death on the cross, his resurrection, that he's the son of God. It's the appropriation of those claims in a realization of our own need for a savior, our, our genuine sinfulness and deserve of judgment. And so that's where you see grace and truth begin in J.C. Ryle's life. Okay, second spot. We might just make it to two spots, but let's keep going. So conversion. Second, let's look at crises. So the greatest change and event in his life was his conversion. But from the world's perspective, it would happen in the years following college. He was on track for a political career. His father uh, decided to get deeper into the banking business and open kind of multiple banks around England. It was a risky proposition. He got involved in some some risky loans to uh, his brother-in-law, I think, uh, something in the neighborhood of two hundred thousand uh, pounds. There was a lot of leveraging happening. The silk manufacturing trade uh, hit a a bump at the same time. Kind of a, some kind of dive happened there. Uh, there's there's some of the biographers go into great detail on the kind of economic thing that happened there. So I I skip those pages. So. The idea behind what was happening was you have this privileged young man on the highest levels of society who's got a butler and a footman and everything else who has this obvious course in front of him kind of destined by his father to be a significant political figure, to probably get into law next and then politics. And uh, this moment is the second most important moment in his life after his conversion. But before that big crisis, there's one I want to talk about for just a second. Ryle gets saved. He comes home. And now he is the stepchild. Like his cousin and his sister, he has this new interest in religious things. And his family is not into it. And so they start to, you know, tell him like, "Clam up! You have got to stop bugging about religion." This is, you know, in 2020 terminology, but they're just—they're annoyed with his newfound love for Jesus. He's become the fanatic they always warned him about, and he's somewhat alienated from his family. Listen to these words. The consequences of this change were very great indeed. It caused great uncomfortableness in my own family, made my position very unpleasant indeed. In fact, no one can tell what I had to go through in hundreds of petty ways. It made an awkwardness and uncomfortableness and an, an estrangement which no one can comprehend except those who have gone through it, I had this constant uncomfortable feeling that on account of my religious opinions, I was only a tolerated person in my own family and somewhat alienated and estranged from all my old friendships among my relatives. I I, I didn't want to skip that because I think that is something that I've heard people in our church say over and over again. Like, As soon as, as I found joy in Jesus, all these relationships changed. And I think I'd want you to know that, that when you experience grace and truth in that way, you will not always receive a, a happy audience. And so maybe some of you here are new believers, and that's happening to you right now. And I just want you to get some encouragement that that's not unusual. It doesn't make it easier, but it gives you sort of a context for understanding that that's how Ryle saw it when his cousin and his sister got saved, and that's how Ryle's family saw it when he came to faith in Christ. And that so often is our experience in, in coming to the church and coming to Jesus and having God change your life, you expect everyone would be so happy that you're no longer depressed and and you know mournful and selfish and wanting to live for, for God and eternity. And that's not usually the response. And it wasn't the response. Um, add to that this new family tension. And he starts to study law and uh, lives the life of a young country gentleman and and doing all country gentleman things. Uh, But John Ryle, Sr., in one night after three and a half years of uh, kind of business shenanigans, all these luxuries and all these certainties about his life and his career came to a crashing halt. He says, we got up one summer morning, June 1841, with all the world before as usual, and went to bed that same evening completely and entirely ruined. A London bank had not accepted a note, and the thing went belly up. People ran the, like in, uh, in uh, Mary Poppins, the people ran the bank demanding their money. There was like such a rush, a dude broke his leg. It was a mess and mayhem, and there was no recovering from it. John Ryle Sr. was wrecked. The creditors came like sharks. The three country homes and their main uh, mansion in Macclesfield were all confiscated rightly. Their bank was taken away. All the silk mills were taken away. They lost everything. This vast fortune from their grandfather passed on to the father because of bad management and bad decision and unfortunate turns in the economy left them completely Dropped from that level of society. I, I don't want to overestimate here because the family would land on their feet. They still... that The wife had uh, sort of an inheritance that they, the, the creditors couldn't touch, and so they lived off of that. I mean, it's not like they were, you know, paupers after this. They, they went from having 12 butlers to one butler. Is that kind of a thing? So... But, I mean, if you've ever had 12 butlers, you know that that's a big jump. So... <laughs> I, I assume. So, I, I think that. So, but this is such a huge moment. Not just because it's. I mean, listen to some of his words here. The immediate consequences were bitter and painful in the extreme, and humiliating to the utmost degree. The creditors, the creditors, naturally, rightly, and justly seized everything, and we children were left with nothing but our own personal property and our clothes. And so they were on the streets. Manservants, butler, under butler, footman, coachman, groom, housekeeper, housemaids were at all once dismissed and paid off, and dispersed to the four winds. Uh, Henbury Hall, that was their like family estate, was sold, and with it—and this is the tough part—both his dogs had. Yeah, that one got you in the fields, huh? Uh, it got him in the fields too. And he tells the story in his autobiography of after he left, he left him in the care of neighbors and they treated his dogs like dogs instead of friends. And they would wander back to the property looking for JC and they both died like within months of just sorrow. I made that part up. Uh, they did die relatively soon. I don't know if it was of sorrow or heartworm or I don't know. I mean, They are dogs. I mean, come on. So anyway, he lost both his dogs. I mean, this is like utter devastation. But what he really lost is his direction in life, his career. And he felt obligated to help his father pay off these massive debts, which J.C. Rao would be tangled up in his father's debts for decades. And that was something he chose to do. He didn't have to do that. And so he needed a job. That's it and the first job that was offered to him. Are you ready? (laughs) Providence. It's just incredible providence. The first job that's offered to J.C. Ryle is, and he calls it in in his autobiography, all doors shut except one. No more parliament, no more worldly companions, no more living like a rich kid, no more studying the law. Totally dropped after the first six months because of the financial ruin. And he gets a call. A call from a pastor for him to be a curate, which is like, yeah, you got to translate that to evangelical American Christianity. It's like a youth pastor job. <laughs> He's he's going to be an associate kind of pastor at this little, tiny country church, and the pay is negligible, but it's a job, and he's desperate. And so J.C. Ryle went into the ministry because he didn't have any other options. And in the future, his critics would use that against him. They'd say he was in it for the money, and which... <laughs> They didn't see his youth pastor salary. It was, it was sad. So that's where Ryle got into ministry. That's where he started to study. That's where he would be ordained. And, and he saw this later in his life as the sovereign grace of God. Ryle was a not, not Wesleyan. He, was, he just saw God shut all doors but one. And this became a, a point of learning for him. It it was like another conversion. He described the humiliation of it all this way. It's easy to be a convert from one party to another party, from one sect to another sect, from one set of opinions to another set of opinions. Such conversions save no one's soul. What we all want is a conversion from pride to humility, from high thoughts of ourselves to lowly thoughts of ourselves. From self-conceit to self-abasement, from the mind of the Pharisee to the mind of the publican, a conversion of this kind we must experience if we hope to be saved. These are the conversions wrought by the Holy Ghost, and it's that same kind of language He'll use to describe the change from a career that would have exalted Ryle to the highest place in society that brought him low—to be a country church um, prelate and, and you know the low position. Amongst the children of this world, he has sought the greatest man who has the most land, most money, most servants, most rank, and most earthly power. Among the children of God, he's reckoned the greatest who does most to promote the spiritual and temporal happiness of his fellow creatures. True greatness consists not in receiving, but in giving, not in selfish absorption in good things, but in imparting good to others, not in being served, but in serving, not in sitting still and being ministered to, but but in going about and ministering to others." And so that's his that's his call into ministry. And there's so many great stories from uh, the next 20 years of his life where he will he serves three different churches, all country churches, all little churches. The biggest one uh, had uh, 300 people in it. And and it was, it was kind of, I mean, he was working not with the sophisticated, not with the you know, intelligentsia that he was used to being surrounded by. He was working with people who were workers, like the kind of people who used to work for his dad's mills. And he learned so much about preaching. In a talk on preaching I give on J.C. Ryle, I like to go into this part because he, by his own admission, in his first charge was a terrible preacher because he talked over everybody's heads because he was so Victorian and fancy and, and Oxford, and, and it was, he said it, was, it had no effect on people. And so he had to teach himself how to talk, just how to talk to people with plain language, or, or they'll cry. So <laughs> that's the kind of lessons that he was learning. And, and other cool stories from this period of his time, just where God is, is humbling this man and, and bringing him low, you know, big, strong j C. Ryle he had these moments of of courage, but it wasn't like you know going toe to toe with the Roman Catholic cardinal or something. instead, there's two guys in his town with two hundred people surrounding them in like a fist fight to the death. two dudes mad at each other and Ryle, the granite side of Ryle, all six foot three of him, decides against every bit of counsel and against the will of the crowd that he's going to break up this fight because he doesn't want these guys to kill each other because he's the town pastor. So he pushes through the crowd, separates these two guys, and with his like booming voice says, "Like you can hit me, but you cannot hit each other anymore. And so he's ready <laughs> with his wingspan. And he broke up the fight, and they felt ashamed and, I, and he thought the crowd was going to kill him because they were into the, the scene. And it dispersed. And so there's, there's all these stories like that from his, his time in the rural parishes. And the first crisis was his bankruptcy, and God used it to push him into the ministry. The next crisis was just life in a fallen world. He was married to Matilda, finally got married. He wasn't interested in marriage before he was converted. Once he was converted, he he fell in love with this girl named Matilda, uh, and they were married for just under two years. They had a little daughter named Georgina, and Matilda died. And so he was left with this tiny baby girl, and and he's a pastor widower. And by God's grace and through so much grief, and trial, he meets another girl named Jessie. And Jessie brings to Ryle so much joy and an equal amount of pain because she was never well. They were married for nearly 10 years. She had five kids. One of them died in infancy. And so now Ryle would have five children, all like young years like I think the oldest was fourteen, and that 's when Jesse died and so these years of pastoring and writing and ministering were marked by deep grief and difficulty. Uh, his second wife died of uh, bright's disease it was just this exquisitely painful experience and she was she was sick more than she was well for all those years and so losing all his fortune was a small trial compared to losing two wives within 10 or so years and then being left with five children to raise by himself his children would go on to talk about their father later in life when he became really well known it was during these years that his writing started to take off but he wouldn't be really well known until towards the end of his life and they talked about what a great dad he was He would play with them, he would read to them, he would pray with them, he would uh, spend all his time when they were home and he was home uh, trying to fill that gap in their home that lacked a mother's love. And Ryle was this just exquisitely strong, wonderful, masculine example of fatherhood uh, and grief all mingled together. Uh, another trial would come. He married, uh, God was so merciful, with, with Ryle's third wife. <laughs> and so he found uh, a, a lovely lady. She was a photographer. Uh, she, was sort of, she was sort of from a big deal family because there's still like the class thing going on. And he marries her, I think in, um, I don't know what year it was, but they were married for a long time, for decades and she became a great mother to his children. And they were married all the way until 1889. Ryle died in 1900. He was 83 when he died, so they were married a long time. And after his third wife, Henrietta, who was married to for, for all those decades, after she died, every week he would walk to her grave. So Ryle understood sorrow and he understood suffering, and he understood humiliation. And I think that's what makes his writings so pastoral and so insightful and so infused with grace and mercy. He said, by affliction, Christ shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, and makes us long for heaven. And it is that, that suffering and trials that we all understand draw us closer to Jesus, to his merciful care. And it's the truth that we know about God, about this world, about salvation, about the life to come, that infuses us with that strengthening grace. And I, I think that's Ryle's great testimony. To read Ryle on any topic... But especially when it comes to suffering, you're hearing from someone who understands what he's talking about. It's not theoretical. It's not academic, but it's experiential. Uh, in his book, Practical Religion, which I, I, I highly recommend, um, this is him talking about kind of the, the danger of false religion. Uh, in it, he repeatedly will return to the theme of suffering, um, To the theme of of genuine burning you know love for christ sustaining through trials and hardships Um, it's got good stuff in it like how to prepare for communion it has things about like hints and tips about bible reading that's very practical and very biblical this is a great little book but my favorite parts of it are the parts where he meditates on god's kindness to him in suffering um Some of the children of God speed on their course towards heaven under the full sails of assurance. Others are tossed to and fro all their voyage and will scarce believe they have got faith. But take the least and lowest of the sons of God. Ask him if he will give up. The little bit of religious hope which he has attained. Ask him if he will exchange his heart with all its doubts and conflicts, its fighting and fears. Ask him if he'll exchange the heart for the heart of the downright worldly and careless man. Ask him if he would be content to turn around and throw down the things he's got a hold of and go back to the world. Who can doubt what the answer will be? I cannot do that, he would reply. I do not know whether I have faith. I do not feel sure I have got grace. But I've got something within me that I would not like to part with. And what is that something? I will tell you, it is the witness of the Spirit. Just a little sample of how he would minister to like a beleaguered kind of person who's sorrowful and lacking assurance. That's just the tenderness of this bishop who could break up a fight. I just love the, 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 the combination there of, of grace and truth, of, of conviction and mercy. And I think we have a great example of that in J.C. Rao. Finally, uh, let's talk a little bit about his churchmanship. And I don't want to get in the weeds of Anglicanism, and we need to wrap this up. But talking a little bit about his churchmanship, uh, his writing was extraordinarily influential. Uh, millions of copies and reprints of his tracks because they were so accessible. This wasn't heady stuff. This was simple stuff. This was evangelistic material. This was help in your Christian life. Uh, His book, Holiness, probably his most well-known work, was written to counter a popular false teaching of his day in Keswick theology. If you went uh, to Andy Naselli's class last week, he talked all about that. If you didn't go to that class, you should download that one and listen to it. It's, It's helpful, no quick fix. Our pastor wrote the afterword for that book. And... J.C. Ryle was kind of the predecessor of, of both MacArthur and Naselli in fighting that kind of let-go-and-let-God instant sanctification thinking where people say, look, you don't have to struggle with sin anymore if you just release. It's like a kind of a yoga sanctification. So uh, J.C. Ryle writes a whole book about it and describes sanctification as uh, requiring effort, dependence on Jesus, fighting against sin, good biblical takes on sanctification. And so this book became a huge testimony to so many people who got adrift in a really popular movement that started in England called Keswick Theology. So uh, that's a highly recommended read. Uh, Other things happened in his life. His writings became so influential and so significant that when he was 63 years old, 63, a time when you're probably thinking... Maybe we get an RV. <laughs> Not Ryle. Ryle is insisting that he wants to help the church. And there's so many people who are pulling out of the Church of England. Similar to today with all the liberalism in the church, and then there's this tiny sliver of, of folks in, in Anglicanism who are trying to you know, preach the gospel, be conservative. Well, it was just like that back then And Ryle was the one who was championing to stay, championing to uh, fight for truth. He had great relationships with everybody. As I read uh, the kind of the high churchmen and, and how they thought of Ryle, they were constantly mocking him, minimizing him, calling him a dinosaur. The religious context of England had so much factiousness and division, but Ryle was a unifier he was kind he would sit down with his most you know arch opponents in uh, in the church of england and he would win them over with his winsome kind uh, personality he was an incredibly gracious man and he never bent on the truth but he didn't see his enemies as someone who were not worthy of his love Uh, That's what I mean by winsomeness. I know some people think winsomeness is a bad word, but uh, I mean, you read Ryle, and he had this passionate commitment for unity and for the care for for others. One one thing he said in talking about these high churchmen, these are dudes that, you know, their Christianity consists of wearing hat and blowing smoke, robes and edifices, and he would sit with them, and he said this, and he would hold these big conferences, and he would preach to them, um, if, if I once see a man face to face, I find it hard to hate him. Tender, Ryle, so tender, so formidable with his stand for the truth. He understood that evangelical unity could only happen around the uh, convictions for the gospel, but he fought for it, and the way he fought for it in a, in a publish, publication he called We Must Unite, He tried to bring men of different opinions together with a common love for Christ. And it wasn't that he was effective at it, really, or or that he was successful in the end, but he just kept the Bible, the cross, and conversion at the forefront of all his efforts. And he urged all those who would to do the same. And I think in that way, Ryle became this incredible uh, reminder that you don't have to separate from everybody and everything in order to stay faithful to the truth. But you can engage with a faithfulness for the truth and not compromise what you believe and extend grace and love and witness and influence to others. And so Ryle is such a great example of that. He gets caught up at the end of his life, at age 63. He's been a country pastor his whole life. Pastor's not the right word. It's Anglicans, but just translate. And at this ripe old age, having buried two wives, his kids are raised, he's written a ton, he's got a lot of notoriety with like common people, he gets called to the fanciest church. I mean, you should see, I, I, I forgot to get a picture of it. I mean, fancy church. All kinds of steeples and things on it big city church and he writes about the the dilemma of the thing because he he was happy pastoring his people he didn't want to go he didn't want to go there this is this is intense so he says this is to go to sorry my, my tabs are getting the best of me now so he gets called to this church and he's not sure he can do it or he should do it. He's on the fence about it. He doesn't know if it's wise and he found it. <laughs> he writes a letter after being called to this this incredible church. The the prime minister himself makes the call. This is Church of England it's church and state simpatico. So He gets called to Salisbury Cathedral. Google it, it's cool. And he doesn't want to go, but he's praying about it. And the next Sunday, he preaches from John 13, 7. What I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. And he does this goodbye sermon to his congregation. And he he writes a telegram in reply to a friend and says, very many thanks for your kind telegram." It's true that last Saturday week, Lord Beaconsfield Beaconsfield offered me the deaconry of Salisbury. It's also true that last Friday, after a week of much doubt, conflict, and prayer, I accepted. And since then, I have no further communication, but I suppose it is all correct. Flesh and blood were utterly against it, but almost every one of 16 whom I consulted said, you ought to go for the sake of Christ's cause in the Church of England. So, who was I that I would withstand? I'd prayed for light and signs of God's will, and this is all I got. If three men had said refuse, I would have refused. (laughs) Cathedral music is not congenial to me. (laughs) I go into a nest of hornets and stand alone. That's why Ian Murray called his excellent biography of J.C. Ryle, prepared to stand alone. I go into a nest of hornets and I shall stand alone. Moving at my age is a very treacherous and expensive business. Old trees transplant badly. (laughs) I have little heart for any move except into heaven. The last 20 years have swept away nearly all I knew and loved best, and I feel sadly alone. But after all, the time is short. I am a soldier. The captain of my salvation seems to say, These are your marching orders. I have nothing to do but to obey. Pray for me. My heart is very heavy. Ever yours affectionately in Christ, J.C. Ryle. The newspapers mocked it. Why would you put an extinct volcano in this big, gorgeous church? The eager and restless temperament of the controversialist will reconcile itself to becoming the central figure of a pre-arranged pageant. They went after him. The Prime Minister calls him to London and says, We've changed our mind. We don't want you to go to that church. I'm sure that Riley or that Ryle thought at first, whew. instead. We want to make you not the pastor of one of the fanciest churches in England. We want you to be the bishop. That's like the pastor of all the pastors of all the churches in Liverpool. So he was hesitant to go to fancy church, one church. And now the prime minister who talked to Queen Victoria about it says, you're going to Liverpool. It's like going to Houston. I think. Port City, smoggy. You know, Houston's got worse weather probably. Eh, different kind of worse weather. But It's like the second or third, third or fourth largest city in England. It's a huge city, a big, dirty city. And he's going from country parishes and breaking up fights and writing and doing all that to all that would be involved in being the bishop of Liverpool. They didn't have a cathedral. They needed to build one. They needed to recruit hundreds of ministers for all these efforts around the city. And he's 63 years old. And the last 20 years of Ryle's life were the most fruitful. He went for it. And as he got older and older, he still stood tall, and he still fought for the truth. He appointed something like 123 pastors. He built all these parishes, tons of church work in the city. He tried to send send out... Uh, lay workers in teams to evangelize lost workers and uh, poor people in the streets. Ryle burnt himself out for God at the end of his life, not compromising by taking this you know, seemingly uh, you know, significant position in society, but instead he went there for the sake of the gospel, and he did that for 20 years. At 83, he retired, and he died a couple months later. That's J.C. Ryle. Now, the end of it all. I love what what they said at his funeral. And, And it would be quiet for 50 years. But at his funeral, let me find it. He was called a great man, one of the greatest men for the gospel, a man who was so beloved and so loving, a man who was gracious and wise, who was affectionate for the flock, who was always committed to the truth. I mean, the the eulogy went on and on about Ryle. And he was a man who had many friends and many enemies, but he never changed from being one who, like the Lord Jesus, tried to embody grace and truth. Close with a, with a really classic Ryle quote. This is him indicting the Church of England. There is a jellyfish Christianity in the land. That is a Christianity without bone or muscle or power, of which the leading principle is, No dogma, no distinct tenets, no positive doctrine. We have hundreds of jellyfish clergymen who seem not to have a single bone in their body of divinity. We have thousands of jellyfish sermons preached every year, sermons without an edge or a point or a corner, smooth as billiard balls, awakening no sinner and edifying no saint. And last and worst of all, we have myriads of jellyfish worshipers, respectable church-going people, who have no distinct and definite views about any point in theology. They think everybody is right and nobody is wrong. Everything is true and nothing is false. All sermons are good and none are bad. Every clergyman is unsound and none every cl- clergyman is sound and none is unsound. It's that kind of doctrinal clarity that I think you get from J.C. Ryle. But it came packaged in this granite mountain of a man who dealt so tenderly with people. Some of his most famous writings were written to children and young men. In fact, his thoughts for young men is something I still give to college students today. So to take away from J.C. Rowe's life is let's embody the same kind of convictional certainty along with the same kind of willingness to serve the Lord in whatever humiliation we can endure with a quest for desire for love and unity and grace in the way we minister the truth, okay? Um, repository thoughts on the Gospels. Matthew, Luke, John, These are uh, Mark, all four Gospels he wrote these volumes on, they're awesome, but don't listen to my Mark sermons because you'll know where they came from. And uh, what else can I say about this? The autobiography by... Um, edited by Atherstone. Just an amazing read if you want a really deep dive. And then uh, Tender Lion by Bennett is a really good resource. Okay? All right. That was fun. Thanks for letting me read about J.C. Rowell all summer. Uh, And I'd love to talk to you more. You're dismissed. I'll be up here if you have questions.